electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, it's the end of the world as we know it, and we might all feel fine. Pfizer says its antiviral COVID pill is 89% effective. A lot of more data coming, but very exciting initial results. The News Plus Pfizer board member and CNBC's trusty doctor on call, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. This really puts uh, an exclamation point on, I think, the end of the pandemic phase of this virus. And it's a soprano story. Bobby Bacaleri, I mean, Steve Shirapa, is spilling show details, behind-the-scenes history, and also some love. You're an honorary soprano, Joe. It's Friday, a very happy Friday indeed, November 5th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand under by in three, two, one, two, Andrew. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, along with Joe Kernan. Becky's off on this Friday morning. It's Jobs Friday. Poll forecasters expecting... What did you say, Joe? I was expecting you to just mention Bitcoin, given this... Ooh, do you want to... We could do a little bit. We should. We should. Based on, now, Andrew, we have... Like, we're going to have Stephen Sherpa on of The Sopranos. Yep. Probably ask him about, but we ask everyone about Bitcoin, but we forgot how, if we had asked Eric Adams, would he have told us that he was going to do this, that he was going to take his first three paychecks in Bitcoin? Have you seen uh, this yet? Have you seen uh, this of yet? Of course I've seen it. Yeah. Of course I mean, I've do you seen think it. he would have told us? I mean, how cool is that, that the, new, the mayor wants New York to be the center of crypto, so he's going to take his first three paychecks, and, and we could have, but there'll be no reason to ask mayor-elect <laughs> Eric Adams about Bitcoin. Would there be? I mean, would there be any reason to ask him about that? It wouldn't have struck me as my first question, but <laughs> here we are. And I it's can't unbelievable. tell. Unbelievable. I don't I don't know what to think. I don't know what to think. Part of me thinks, it's, thinks it's great it. in certain ways. And part of me oh, gets anxious. No, as, you're, as going you know. back to the, you're going back to the cautious, Andrew. Come on, man. You're the you're the one that's right on the cusp between millennials and whatever the hell you are. You're supposed to be comfortable with this by now. I'm comfortable with Bitcoin. I'm just less. I don't, I, Coinbase. I, I don't know what this all says. The pandemic stocks stink. The pandemic stocks are going this way. Yeah. Yeah, this way. I sort of. Uh, I had the early call on this. I sold my Peloton, and, and I had to, you know, take all the clothes that I had hanging on it. When I, uh, I hated that thing. I, I like the treadmill. I would get the treadmill, but the bike is. Uh, I don't know. Go ahead. I love that you said. You know, when you said you sold Peloton, I think most of no, our, no, our no, listeners and viewers are thinking you sold I the sold, soccer, oh, oh, but you sold, sold your actual Peloton. No, I you sold, sold the my bike. bike. No, I, I sold the bike that I had. Who did you, you sell, sell it to? On, a, on, Craig, on one of the, my wife handled it, but we got a lot of offers for it. And it's like, they're like brand new. They're so well made. Right. They're, you know, the, the bikes. Did you get that, it? I'm told that there's a great aftermarket for it. So did you get, yes, hopefully, got uh, cash, I was told got there was a, a period where it was a, 
There was a premium for them, actually, at one point. There was because a it was premium. So it, it, it wasn't like okay. a, a, a Volkswagen Beetle, but, but it did. we got a good, good price for it in cash. And the guy was happy. I was happy. You know, it was hard getting it up from the basement. You needed like eight right. people. They're, they're so well made. Anyway, let's tell, uh, tell us. You should have t- taken it in Bitcoin. Uh, but let's tell you what's going on here. Peloton shares, they are plunging this morning. Uh, this after the company reported a loss of $1.25 per share. That's versus the expectation of a $1.07 loss. Revenue also missing in sales of connected fitness products, including the bikes and the treadmills, falling 17%. The company cut its forecast. One bright spot was subscription revenue, which grew 94%. But um, this has been... We've been talking about this theme. We've seen so yep. many of these stocks that had gone up during the pandemic, the Zooms mm-hmm. of the world. The Pel- Look, I got my Peloton treadmill. We still use it. I love it. Um, yep. the, the, we got the Tread, Tread Plus before it was called the Tread Plus, and it's a great, it's a great so machine. Soft. But I think soft. there's a lot of people who did that, and now I don't know if they're going to do that it, as much. I probably should be on, uh, well, obviously I should be on any exercise uh, equipment, but I probably should be on the bike instead of the treadmill because my knee's you know, at this point are a little suspect. Uh, but I like treadmill. The I like treadmill doing it on the treadmill is, so much more. Is uniquely is it soft? soft. It is. It's, this is, a, this is for, those of, for those viewers who know about, for example, like a Woodway treadmill, Woodway. which has those Woodway. slats. It's I like very those. soft. This is uh, very similar in, the, in that way. And by the way, Joe, you know what you can do? And I do it all the time, and I'm not ashamed to say it. I walk on the treadmill constantly. I put it on an incline. I watch a movie. I do a conference yeah. call. Constant. Not That's how same. I do it. Not the same. You know, I, need, I, wear a, I wear a heart rate monitor. No, I know, I but you don't need to do anything. Uh, uh, for my fatness, my, there has to be a point where both of my feet are off the ground occasionally. That's different. That's, that, that, that is different than, um, than walking. You know, like when they slow-mo uh, a horse, you've seen that, like a racehorse. There are times right. where they're all four. Yes. And I need my two feet you need to get, okay. off the ground to, to burn calories. I think. We'll and and then some, the, some, the endorphin buzz we'll is great, is it together. not? The endorphin buzz Please. is amazing from running, too. You don't get that from walking, I don't think. If you really are, if you're hoofing it, if you're hoofing it, you can and, do and it. On but an I, incline. But you on the incline. You got you to, okay. you know, max it out. Yesterday, President Biden unveiled his new COVID vaccine mandate for businesses uh, with 100 uh, workers or more. Deadline is January 4th, but now business groups are speaking out. Two retail uh, groups, for example, including the National Retail Federation, had requested a 90-day implementation period. They say January 4th will burden, that date will burden retailers during the busy holiday shopping season. The NFIB, which represents small businesses, opposes uh, the rule and says it restricts the freedom of small business owners to decide how best to operate their own businesses and imposes unwarranted burdens. And then Business Roundtable CEO Josh Bolton welcomed the extension for the mandate for federal contractors, but uh, called for the Biden administration to be uh, flexible. And Josh is a friend of the show. Uh, uh, we should have him on. Uh, uh, that would be a good discussion. We should, we should call Josh. He's, we, he likes me now. I, one time I, I kidded around and said, Josh, I thought we had Michael Bolton. And I pretended to be disappointed that it was, you know, that I misunderstood. And, and he took offense to that. Um, Andrew, I mean, we'll, we'll call Bolton. We'll call Bolton. We'll get him Michael on the Bol- air. We Josh should, Bolton. We could do. We'll call Josh. This should be like a call-in radio show. We should just. We, you're right. Call in. in. 
We've done that. In the moment. We've done in that. In the moment. He can call Absolutely. in right now. Or Michael Bolton could call in. I'll take either one of their calls and put them on. We have Stephen Sherpa on uh, in a little while from The Sopranos. And uh, the, the rest of this story. The National Association of Manufacturers said it worried about undue cost burdens uh, as that mandate is implemented. So how do workers feel about the vaccine mandate? A lot of views. And Sharon Epperson joins us now with the latest results from a new CNBC survey. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning, Andrew. You know, although most say that their employers do not require COVID-19 vaccinations right now, a majority of workers, 54 percent, support President Biden's employer vaccine mandate. That's according to the CNBC Momentum Workforce Survey. Supporters include 52 percent of those who are currently working fully in person, 58 percent of hybrid workers and 65 percent of remote workers. Of the 37 percent of workers whose companies already require in-person workers to be fully vaccinated, the survey found most are in healthcare and pharmaceuticals, airlines and aerospace, and advertising and marketing. Construction, transportation, and delivery have the lowest share of in-person workers who are fully vaccinated, according to the study, Andrew. Sharon, you've reported on the labor crunch caused by the so-called great resignation uh, that seems to be upon us. So what does this survey really say about the impact uh, on workers who are left behind who stay in their roles? Well, half of the more than 11,000 workers who were surveyed say that their company is currently understaffed. And that's a huge threat to further attrition. Those workers are nearly twice as likely as workers with adequate staffing to say they've considered quitting their jobs in the last three months. And overall, one in three workers say they've seriously considered quitting in recent months. And then I was going to ask, what type of worker do you think right now is most likely to walk away from their job as a result of all of this? Well, this survey showed that low-wage workers, those who are making under $50,000 a year, are most at risk of walking away. The food and beverage industry, advertising and marketing, and agriculture have the highest percentages of workers who are considering quitting. And meanwhile, parents with kids under 18 are no more or less likely than others to say they've recently thought of quitting, although mothers are more likely than fathers to say they thought about it. Sharon Epperson, great to see you. Thank you. Breaking news just out from Pfizer. Meg Terrell joins us now with more. Hey, Meg. Good morning, Joe. So Pfizer reporting results on its oral antiviral drug for COVID coming in at 89% and reducing the risk of hospitalization or death from COVID when people who are not hospitalized but who are at high risk of the disease take this drug within three days of symptom onset. That is such a massive benefit that Pfizer was told by the outside committee overseeing the trial that it should stop enrollment right now and file for emergency use authorization as soon as possible. So that is what they are going to do. Uh, now, this is a similar population of patients as the drug from Merck, which showed that 50% reduction on that measure uh, just last month. Um, Merck's was given within five days of symptom onset. Pfizer also measured that, and there the benefit was 76%. So Pfizer CEO Albert Borla calling this a potential game changer in this global effort to halt the devastation of this pandemic. He says if this drug is approved by regulatory authorities, it has the potential to save patients' lives, reduce the severity of COVID infections, and eliminate up to nine out of 10 hospitalizations. So guys, this is the second oral antiviral to show positive results in a trial and potentially adding new tools to the arsenal here. Of course, Merck's just approved in the UK and coming up for FDA review at the end of this month. We'll see how quickly Pfizer's can get through that as well. I got a couple of questions. So that's better efficacy. Does it work the same way? I think the, I think the, the Merck drug is a, isn't it a nucleoside analog or something? It disrupts the, the, uh, the viral replication. 
but it also has some worries about uh, its mutagenic in, in was it either in vitro or with mice or, or something. So and the, the UK did it pretty quickly, even with some of those concerns. Any similar concerns here with the Pfizer drug, Meg? Yeah, so Pfizer's drug is a different mechanism of action. It's a protease inhibitor versus a polymerase inhibitor, which Merck's is. Pfizer says they have not seen that mutagenic risk in animal studies, so there there aren't similar concerns with that. Pfizer's drug is given with ritonavir, which is an HIV drug, which helps sort of slow the breakdown of Pfizer's molecule in the body. And I think analysts have pointed to some drug-drug interactions for that drug, which could potentially limit the number of people or which people could get this, but that's something to better understand. Uh, but certainly a different uh, safety profile. But Merck has said the mutagenic concerns are not something that they're worried about with this right. drug, given the short duration. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, but I know that, that 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 has been mentioned. Well, I'm, see, I'm seeing, you know, some possibilities for some great cocktails down the road. Uh, and 89 percent is pretty 89 percent. That, that's a that's a good number if it holds up. In this trial, they, they only um, included people who are unvaccinated. Um, so it'll be interesting to see the regulatory pathway for this, whether it will be just high risk people in general. Vaccination status doesn't matter. Uh, they are also including a trial of vaccinated people uh, to see if this can help when people have infections after vaccination. So a lot of more data coming, um, but very exciting initial results. Andrew, in terms of manufacturing, they have been manufacturing at risk already. I believe they'll have something like 180,000 courses available by the end of the year, which of course is coming up quickly. They're going to have millions next year, I think 50 million for the entire year with 20 million or so, you know, coming within the first half. Um, So they are ramping this up quite largely. But is this the kind of thing that scales up where they have hundreds of millions, if not, you know, uh, the equivalent of a billion doses so that people, but I mean, hopefully there won't be that many people who need this, but is this going to be the kind of thing where if you ever get COVID, you'll just take it as, uh, you know, it'll be almost part of the sort of regiment? Yeah, potentially. You know, you you get COVID, you take a rapid test, and then you get you could even do it by mail. You know, immediately get a thing or, or go to the pharmacy and be able to pick it up there uh, and take it really quickly. Or they're even testing it prophylactically if you've been exposed to somebody. So that could be a potential too. We have to understand the safety profile better and, and make sure this would work so broadly for everybody. But in terms of manufacturing, uh, right now we've just seen the initial numbers. They're investing a billion dollars in this, but I think what they've shown us through their vaccine manufacturing prowess is you can't count them out. If they think they need to ramp something up, they really can. Do um, is this this protease inhibitor? I mean, they know how to do that. Obviously, we we remember HIV and everything else. It, it, proteases are distinctive enough in different viruses where it has to be. A, a new protease inhibitor, or, or is it so similar that that they can? Uh, that they can customize it to uh, to COVID fairly quickly. It looks like this is done fairly quickly, it looks like. They developed this for the coronavirus in their own labs at the beginning of the pandemic. That's pretty remarkable. So Molnupiravir yeah. was something that had been developed for other viruses. This one Pfizer started working on at the beginning, and now we're seeing the fruits of that work. Yeah, good. Uh, but they knew the that it was a viable mechanism uh, in terms of, of something to attack in terms of the the. the uh, life cycle of, of COVID, Andrew. Meg, in terms of studies that need to happen, you're talking about uh, studying people who are vaccinated, for example, and more. What, what's the timeline like that look, look like right now? Pfizer uh, gave some forecasts on that earlier in the week when they had earnings, and it seems like it's going to be coming into the middle of next year, and we should get the readouts from those. So they're also testing people at standard risk, people who are vaccinated. 
and testing this sort of preventively, as you were just talking about. So we'll see that through, you know, sort of the next half year or so, it seems like. But it was funny because earlier this week, it almost seemed like Pfizer had pushed back the timeline for getting these antiviral results um, when really they were coming three days later. So this was kind of a surprise. I don't understand Moderna either, although, you know, that has something to do with the disappointing numbers uh, and forecasts that we saw uh, earlier this week. But um, now you don't. Wow, I got my my Pfizer drug. I'm not getting vaccinated. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense uh, for me to to see Moderna down, does it? That's another knee jerk reaction. It is. But Wall Street does in this space tend to pit drugs against vaccines, whether that's reasonable to do or not. But it is a fear of people in the public health world. You know, we hear from Dr. Fauci even extolling how great the Merck results were. He was warning this is not a replacement for vaccines. There is a concern that people will think, okay, there's a great drug out here that can potentially cure me or keep me out of the hospital. I don't need to get vaccinated or I don't need my booster. That is something public health officials are worried about. Right. Thank you, Meg. Coming up on Squawk Pod, it's huge news from Pfizer and a huge shift in the pandemic. Dr. Scott Gottlieb. We are nearing the end of this pandemic as it relates to the United States. I think the availability of therapeutics like this really demarcate the end of this pandemic phase of of this virus. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. We're back with more Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box uh, here on CNBC live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Becky's off today. Uh, this Pfizer news. The news you just heard Andrew talk about it. A pill, 89%. We saw the, the remember when, when Merck uh, reported those results, Andrew, the futures yep. turned around that day. It was a, uh, yeah, a month ago or so. So I would venture to say that, that we have a new lead. If we were print reporters, I guess you are. I am. I'm not. But if we were print reporters, this would have to move something off of the the right hand side of of the the page, I think. And joining us now, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, CNBC contributor, serves on the board uh, of Pfizer uh, and Illumina. Interesting action, Scott. I know you're not a stock analyst, but Merck immediately uh, sold off about four or five percent from from this news. We know that the UK, I think it was just yesterday or the day before, I gave authorization to use their therapeutic, their COVID therapeutic. Uh, does this, from what you can tell, and I know you're on the board of Pfizer, we say, people say, do we ever disclose that? Um, that's sometimes I think we, we don't have much time left for the interview. We, we disclose it so much. Do you feel that this Pfizer drug is, is, uh, is shown better efficacy than the Merck drug with, with perhaps 
less concern about uh, eugenicity or, or other side effects? Well, look, there weren't comparative trials done. The uh, bottom line is we have an overwhelming toolbox right now to combat COVID. And this is a phenomenal result. This exceeded any reasonable expectation with all the usual caveats that this was a trial that was stopped early by the data monitoring, monitoring committee for overwhelming efficacy. I think the bottom line is the end of the end of the pandemic, at least as it relates to the United States, is in sight right now, given all the tools we have to combat this uh, this disease. Now, we still have to get through this Delta wave. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to vaccinate our way out of it. These therapeutics are coming too late to really affect that wave of infection. Um, but once we get through this Delta wave of infection over the course of the next two months, I think that this therapeutic and the other innovations that we've seen coming to market really mark the end of the pandemic for the United States. And we need to think about how we put that, you know, victory uh, sign on the side of the White House, how we declare victory over this pandemic, at least here in the United States. Everyone stresses that this should not be in any way thought of as, as a, uh, an either-or for getting vaccinated. But as contentious as that issue is in mandatory vaccine, and I'm not even sure, you know, in the past you've said you don't know whether the carrot or the stick might work better. But do you think this might alleviate some of the, the, the um, what's been very divisive in terms of government mandates or mandates that, you know, people losing their jobs because they don't get vaccinated? Uh, because it could be as early as December, perhaps, that, that this was actually on the market, maybe. Well, look, this isn't in lieu of vaccination. We still need to try to vaccinate the public. This is going to be a backstop for people who have a breakthrough infection despite vaccination that's being studied for breakthrough infections, people who don't respond well to uh, vaccines and people who can't get vac vaccinated for whatever reason. I think the bottom line, though, is that these mandates that are going to be put in place by January 4th really are coming on the tail end of this pandemic. Um, by, by January 4th, this pandemic may well be over, at least as it relates to the United States, after we get through this Delta wave of infection. And we'll be in more of an endemic phase of this uh, this virus. In my hometown here in Connecticut, uh, we have five cases per 100,000 people per day, and we lifted our mask mandate yesterday. I mean, at those levels, those are the lowest levels that we've seen at any point in this pandemic, even going back last summer. So we are nearing the end of this pandemic as it relates to the United States. I think the availability of therapeutics like this that could be used to help people who have breakthrough infections, people who don't respond well to vaccination, the small number of people who have decided to forego vaccination really demarcate the end of this pandemic phase of, of this virus. And we're going to have to deal with this as a more endemic risk. Um, and remember also, yeah. just finally... We've vaccinated about 80 percent of eligible adults. I mean, we've been very successful in this country at vaccinating the adult population. And the uptake so far in the 5 to 11 vaccine has been very brisk. So there's been a lot of Americans who've made the decision to go out and get vaccinated, do the responsible thing and protect themselves and their families. Scott, uh, one of the big policy issues, of course, is going to become pricing. And if you want to get this into the hands of everybody, if you want to have this at CVS and Walgreens and have people have access to this, uh, obviously, I imagine with a prescription nonetheless, the pricing is going to have to be in, at, at a level that is therefore affordable. Uh, it appears that we're talking about a $700 price point potentially uh, that may be half of what remdesivir is. But the truth is, uh, compared to a Tamiflu, which is at about $155, $175 without insurance, it's a lot more. And the question is, how many people will actually have access to this if it is at that kind of price point? Yeah, look, the, first of all, I don't set pricing decisions for Pfizer. Uh, Tamiflu is a, a generic at this point. I, has, I suspect that this pricing is going to evolve over time, including as the cost of goods evolve over time. Um, 
Pfizer does have a plan to provide equitable pricing around the world to make sure that there's access in low- and middle-income countries, an aggressive plan. I think that this is going to be widely accessible. I don't think price is going to be an impediment. Right now, the price is really being set in negotiations with the government. The government is the purchaser here. This is being priced, as I understand, in a way that's comparable to how they've negotiated around the Merck pill as well. But I think this pricing is going to evolve over time as the virus evolves over time. Um, you know, as this becomes more of an endemic uh, uh, virus, you're going to see the pricing of different therapeutics evolve. Hey, Scott, the headlines out of Germany yesterday, very uh, troubling. And it, in terms of a, a resurgence of COVID, uh, then it was noted in the piece that it was primarily in unvaccinated uh, people. But the, uh, the horrific uh, forecast was that another half a million people uh, could lose their lives by, by February. Does this Pfizer news, do you, Albert talked about saving lives in the, from here on out with this immediately. That, would, that might take that off the table. But what are the chances that, that we have, have a German-type situation here in our unvaccinated um, uh, population? Look, we still need to get more people vaccinated, but we've done a good job getting a lot of Americans vaccinated. We're still going to have um, COVID infection. There's still going to be an, an endemic virus. It's still going to circulate. We're still going to need to probably get revaccinated periodically or change the vaccines over time. This is going to be something like that we that, like the flu that we have to combat on a regular basis. But when you have therapeutics that are this effective, that can be a backstop for people for whom vaccines don't work, people who have breakthrough infections. This pills being studied in that setting. Um, it really is a backstop against death and disease from from this infection. We have a, a situation right now between the antibody drugs that are available that I think could be used on a prophylaxis basis for people who don't get a good response from vaccines. Therapeutics like this Pfizer drug, if it does get over the finish line with FDA and highly effective vaccines that nobody should die from COVID. We should be able to prevent COVID. This is an avoidable death at this point, given the mix of therapeutics, the widely accessible diagnostic tests that we have to get people diagnosed early, the monoclonal antibodies that we have. We have a tremendous toolbox that we We've developed over a very short period of time, and we've largely conquered this disease, at least as it relates to the Western world, where widespread access is available. We have to make sure that access, obviously, is equitable around the world. Scott, just to follow up on on Joe's question, though, what is your read on the situation in Germany itself? What what do you think is happening there? Um, Are there not enough people that have gotten vaccinated? Are we getting to a situation like Israel pre-booster, not enough people boosted? What's the what's the analysis? Yeah, look, I think it's it could be some combination of all those things. You haven't rolled out the boosters, so you're having some declining vaccine efficacy. Um, there is some decoupling between the infections and the overall morbidity that you're seeing from the infection spreading, like in the U.K. right now, where there's still infections circulating, but it's life back to normal in the U.K., and you're seeing a real decoupling between the infections and hospitalizations and deaths. I mean, there's going to continue to be circulation of COVID. I don't think Germany's done as good of a job rolling out the vaccine, getting their populations vaccinated as we've done so far here in the United States, and at least in parts of the United States. But there's, there's pockets of Germany that are more un, unvaccinated right now. Um, And they may be grappling with some of the Delta spread a little bit later than us. So I don't know all the reasons why Germany is experiencing resurgence, but you are going to continue to see circulation of this virus. It's not going away. It's going to be an endemic virus. We're going to need to learn to live with it. But with tools like this, if, in fact, this result holds up um, in subsequent studies and in the full data when it's available, this really puts an exclamation point on, I think, the end of the pandemic phase of, uh, of this virus. That's a big, uh, big statement, Scott. We hope uh, from from your lips, we hope it happens. Thank you. Appreciate having you on um, this morning. Coming up, Stephen Chirpa. Now it's Friday. He's on early. I I can't. I love talking about The Sopranos, which, as you know, 
the a, a whole new generation is addicted yes. to The Sopranos. I, I've watched it, I think, three or four times all the way through. Man, oh, man, every episode needs to be but canceled. But have, have you watched the new film? I tried. I didn't like it. I didn't like it. No, I tried to watch it. You know who I'm going to talk? I miss Gandolfini. I, I didn't know him, but I, I, we all feel a connection to him. He was so, he was so amazing. Yep. Um, we feel a connection. But every one of those episodes would be canceled. Every one of them in this current uh, milieu that, that we're in right now. They'd all be, I mean, I watch it now, and I'm like, does anyone see me watching this? I might, I might get fired for watching some of the stuff on The Soprano. Did you see, and I don't want to spoil it, and maybe we'll talk about it later. You know how it really ended now, right? You I read the, the David Chase. I, I, that's not different yeah. than what I thought. And I've had ice cream okay. at, that, at that place in uh, Bloomfield. It's a little, cool little place that, that David Chase grew up in North Caldwell, I think. Okay, well, maybe we'll, maybe we'll get there. That's a nice tease for later in terms of what we may discuss. I hope we'll discuss that because I we thought it was fascinating discuss it with to him. I, uh, it, He wrote the book with him, Michael Imperioli, who I also love. I, maybe right. we can get him to call in, too. Okay, well, you know who's next. Up until the other day, I always said Tony Soprano was alive and well, living in New Jersey. Soprano's actor Steve Shirapa, a.k.a. Bobby Baccalieri, on that famous final scene. 14 years and a streaming revolution later, the spoilers don't stop. Cut to black. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod today with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Joe. The Sopranos' final episode aired more than 14 years ago, yet the series has found a new younger audience in part uh, to streaming uh, services and other things. Joining us now, Stephen Shirapa, actor and author. He, of course, played Bobby Baccalari on the famed show. His new book, co-authored with Michael Imperioli, Christopher Moltisanti, you might know him as, is titled uh, Woke Up This Morning, The Definitive Oral History uh, of the Sopranos, my buddy, how you doing, uh, Uncle Steve? You're everybody's uncle. That's your that's your uh, your great marinara and and eggplant and other great sauces that you send me once in a while. I'm not I'm not asking for that, but you know if if, if you remember, it's a good thing you're not asking, Joe, because I'm out of business with that. But, oh uh, no, <laughs> uh, you know I still have some. I, I have one left from from what you. If I can, we restart it. If I if I fund it. <laughs> you yeah. got too. You got too. You got too much going on. Actually, the, the Sopranos is such amazing content that in the in the new age uh, of streaming and podcasts, it was like a natural, and, and you're very successful. And now the book. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, a lot of we found out that a lot of younger people uh, started watching the show. Kids in their teens, their twenties. Their parents watched it. They were too young. And uh, 
you know, a whole new generation watching the show. Probably more people watching now because of streaming than did back then. Not everybody had HBO. So we started a podcast. Uh, at the, we, was, we, we had a plan before the pandemic. Uh, we started it in April. We're, we're finishing up. We're coming down to the wire. We went through every single scene not just every season, every scene, and then the natural progression. We had so much material. We got the book. So the book is a podcast plus 50%. Amazing. I, I saw that Michael, Michael has a band. He was playing down in lower New York, and people came. The girls were dressed like, like Aid and, and uh, you know, Christopher's girlfriend. and um, So they're all into it. And I, I couldn't tell whether he was somewhat chagrin that he's always going to be Christopher Moltisanti. And, and, I, and I, I wonder how you view that. You're always going to be remembered as, as Bobby. And that, is that both a blessing and a curse, would you say, well, you Stephen? Know, before, you, know, you know, guys, before I was on the show, I, I, you know, I was dabbling in acting. I, you know, I, I had a whole nother life. I was entertainment director at the Riviera in Las Vegas. Uh, I started acting. I had no career. So you get on this show probably the greatest show in TV history, they're going to see you as Bobby. But I've worked for 22 years straight. I was on another series for five years, played a suburban dad. Blue Bloods now, I play a detective. Right. I've been on that show for, this is my seventh season. So let let them remind me, uh, you know, uh, remember me as Bobby and him as Christopher, but we've done a whole bunch of other stuff. But it was a great moment in our lives, you know, once in a lifetime uh, a once-in-a-lifetime situation where we all got together and made this incredible show. And we've all heard stories about Jim, and I, I didn't know him. I pretended I can call him Jim, which I can't, but I yeah, feel... Yeah, you can, Joe. You're I an honorary soprano, Joe. You can. I feel the loss, Steve, and I, I still do. I mean, that was... Man, he was, he was just so big and so many ways larger than life, and one of the great, really great actors. I don't know if he ever got credit for how... I mean, he was in that role uh, at times, and, and that was when that happened. I don't think I'm over it yet. Got to be. How, how many years is it? Well, it was 2000. I, I, it's one of those things I remember, June 19th, uh, night, uh, eight, uh, 2013. Uh, you know, and uh, yeah, I had seen Jim, and we talked about it in the book. The last time the three of us were together was uh, May 20th. Uh, you know, we went to a premiere of a movie uh, for Nickelodeon that we were all in together. Uh, we talk about Jim a lot in the book. He was, a, a, you know, a very dear friend of both of ours. We talk about his generosity. I've talked about it before. Contract dispute. He gave each one of us $33,333 each. Uh, we found out after he passed away, he had paid off people's mortgages, gave them money, went to a uh, a police officer in New Jersey that he didn't know, the family contacted him, went to the wake on his own, drove the car, knew no one, and, and paid his respects. He was a good man and a great actor. And I, I think as good an actor as anybody. Even though supposedly, uh, I think on the, on the show, he went to Seton Hall for a semester, but we'd re be remiss if I didn't say he went to Rutgers, and Becky's not here today, but a Rutgers, <laughs> Rutgers grad. Andrew, you, you got it? Guy. Yeah, Rutgers guy. So, Steve, I know I got to ask him about that, the David Chase interview. I think it was just this week with Hollywood Reporter about, uh, about the ending. And 
I was holding out hope. Maybe. Maybe I just wanted to hold out hope. Maybe I was holding out the wrong hope. Clear, clearly, I was wrong to, to hold out. The, did you know exactly what the ending really was? Did you know that? Well, no, did you, I tell, didn't. We're going to ruin it if we tell, the, if we tell, if we tell everybody no, now. No, we'll tell the audience. Like spoiler. No, we'll tell you, the audience. You, because I, up until the other day, I always said uh, Tony Soprano was alive and well, living in New Jersey. I said, what, they killed, they, they killed him in the diner uh, in front of his family? You know, that's what's my thing. Maybe I was just hoping. And then I, I've had David. David's been on the podcast twice. He's coming on again for the finale. And I've asked him, and he kind of gave me a waffle answer. And the other day, I understood that as Tony Soprano was dead. And uh, it makes me sad because I always uh, held on to the hope that somehow nothing happened in that scene and it faded to black and that was that. But I read what you read. I think Tony Soprano is dead. So much to uh, so much to talk about reading through this and, and the, his mother, the great actress, in, in the way that uh, apparently they had a stand in after she had already passed away to sort of tie things up in the show. And Jim had trouble. Uh, had had trouble acting the way he had with, uh, well, I can't remember uh, the actress's name. It's and Nancy Marchand. Nancy yeah, Marchand played Livia. Uh, and you know, you know, it's Great a funny role. story. Somebody came into David, and I think it was Stevie Van Zandt. Uh, you know, was reading the script at the beginning, and he and he read, and he went, "Oh, the script is great, but who the hell is this mother?" And David said, <laughs> "That's my mother." Because uh, uh, they said when Nancy Marshawn came in to audition, she channeled David Chase's mother. Uh, and uh, Jim, I think, was a little out of sorts. They had that CGI actress with Nancy, you know, Nancy yeah, Marshawn's yeah, yeah. face, and the technology wasn't great. And I think, I think so. I think he was a little out of sorts there. They were very close, and she passed away. Uh, she was just. Such a huge part of shows. Huge. A, what, what, there would be. He would not have been going to see Doctor Melfi if he hadn't been raised by <laughs> by, you know, by thing that mother. We talk about is, uh, you know, what would have happened if she didn't pass away? That's you know, good. What, what, you know, it would have been a, a different show, a different story. Oh man! You know? I think that's why uh, Aida Totoro uh, played Janice. They put her. You know, after she killed her husband to be, they put her on the bus. Uh, and I think Jackie she would have been gone. Jackie you know? April, in the, yeah. right, in the, right between the eyes. I could talk forever. Uh, you know what? Campagnola is still open. Can can I go with you and, and Michael to that? Will you set that up? I would. It's on me, pal. I'd love to take you there. Or we go even better. Let's go downtown to, to Mulberry Street, Danico. All right. Let's go there. Uh, you just call me an honorary it's soprano. I, I knew Al too, Sapienza. He's he's cool. He he was what a, a great man. Good great man. character like he was. A lot. Yeah. Okay, geez, uh, this is a business network, Andrew. Um, I, I, as you can tell, I I would watch every episode and try to know business. every single this is the thing. Best kind of business, Joe. Every single thing in every Same episode kind of is, is is worth uh, go, going over. Steve, thanks for coming on. Good luck Thank with the book. Thank you very much. We'll See you probably guys be on our podcast. Time. We have a podcast, Squawk Pod, and I'll bet you you're going to be on our uh, podcast. Anytime. It'll be my pleasure. Just give me the call. Joe knows how to get a hold of me. I do. All right. Thank you, my friend. Great, great to guys. have you Thank on. Thank you very much. And that is Squawk Pod for today, this Friday, when we're all honorary sopranos. 
Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Squawk Pod is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, even if you don't, leave us a rating or write a review on Apple Podcasts. Send us a tweet on Twitter at Squawk CNBC. However you want to get in touch with us, we are happy to hear from you. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a great weekend. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 